Welcome to another special release episode of MPMA's Bug Bites podcast. I'm one of your hosts for the podcast, Mike Bentley. This episode features a one-on-one interview with Dr. Neve Quinn, Human Wildlife Interactions Advisor with the University of California Cooperative Extension. In addition to being a leading educator of commensal rodent management for the pest control industry, Neve leads one of the most active and important rodent research teams in the U.S., whose primary focus over the past few years has been to better understand the life cycle of rodenticides in the environment and their impacts on target and non-target wildlife. I have to preface this interview by letting you know that the conversation originally took place in December of 2019, right before the world came to a screeching halt because of the pandemic. But I'm really excited to finally be releasing this interview because, aside from being such a fun and fascinating conversation, Neve and her team are undertaking some really incredible work that everyone needs to know about. And trust me, despite the age of our interview, what Neve shared during her conversation is probably more important now than ever. The first thing, I guess, is that you are not an entomologist, even though you show up in a lot of our entomology-based conferences, right? That is correct. I think the entomologist thinks they're the center of the pest management world, Mike. <laughs> we, they, we are a little bit self-absorbed, I think, in a lot of ways. You know, we we do deal with things with six legs. That's more than four. You know, so we kind of have this arrogance about us. Yeah, we. I only do uh, four legs and fur, so everything from mice to mountain lions, pretty much. Um, how long have you? How did you get into to rodents? Because I, you know, people think I'm weird for studying bugs. I think it's weird to study rodents. How did you get into that? Well, I, I'm obviously not from the United States. I'm originally from Ireland, and we kind of have a depraved fauna in Ireland. And so not to get too sciencey about it, but when the ice was melting during the Ice Age, all the animals were hiding down in Spain, you know, as all of us would like to. Um, and as the ice melted, the animals started to kind of, you know, spread out over continental Europe And then they started to walk across the ice over to um, England. And then what happened was, is that the ice melted in between Ireland and England before everything else kind of got there. So Ireland doesn't really have that many mammals. And we have way less mammals than continental Europe and even way less mammals than Britain. Um, And so rodents are pretty good bet. Um, And so I started off my undergrad research, um, which we have to do in Ireland. We have to do our own undergrad research thesis. And it's it's a huge portion of our our grade. And that's kind of what really introduced me to scientific research. And I did it on the red squirrel. Um, Because in Ireland, we have the eastern gray squirrel as well. So the eastern gray squirrel that you have in the eastern United States was introduced to Britain and Ireland way back in the early 1900s. And it's kind of pushing the red squirrel um, to the brink of extinction almost. Um, but we, um, I, I started to study that for my undergrad thesis. And then an opportunity came along for my PhD to study um, not just rodents, but another small mammal called the pygmy shrew, which is Ireland's smallest mammal, which is about three grams. I'm not sure what that is in ounces, but it's really, really, really tiny. And so that's where my my interest in rodents started. And it kind of just snowballed from there. I started then to work in the U.S., working on roof rats, but roof rats on the ag side of things. And then I moved, um, I was kind of a hobo for a while, Mike. Then I moved to the <laughs> University of Liverpool, where I researched disease in rodents. And then I moved um, to Southeast Asia, where I worked with Grant Singleton, looking at um, kind of species that are very, very similar to roof rats, actually. Um, looking at their impact in agriculture. Um, and then I came over here and became a, a true official rat whacker. <laughs> See, that's what you need to start putting on your name badges at the conferences is, is rat whacker. That's uh, yeah. that we need. We're going to, oh, man, I feel like we're going to make a lot of money making t-shirts. Um, official yeah. <laughs> rat whacker t-shirts. That's, I know some people yeah. that would pay good money for those shirts. Um. All right, so I'm trying to wrap my head around this because it's a pretty widespread... It sounds like a lot of it was ecology-based, though, right? Absolutely. It was all ecology... Well, it was all ecology-based, and most of it was looking at the impacts of humans in some way. So whether that was agriculture or potential disease spillover or now the kind of the impacts of... It kind of flipped around where I'm kind of more looking at the impacts of... um, human management on um on rodents and other animals yeah yeah so i mean it's I, I think a lot of people fail to realize the the importance of how much 
influence development has on shaping the ecology of some of these animals, specifically things like rodents, and how important that truly is, and how many other factors go into you know changing the behavior of these things. And that's why people you know shouldn't be surprised whenever we build a new shopping mall, and then suddenly you have a coyote in the backyard, right? Pretty much. And like in here in Southern California, you know, especially here in Orange County, where I'm based, you know, Orange County, 10, 15 years ago was 75% agriculture. And now it probably even less than 10%. And so there's been a dramatic shift. Um, and that doesn't mean that um, it totally influences the kind of the makeup of the species we have here, but it certainly helps. But then, you know, when you have an urban area and urban areas also, I mean, it's kind of a smorgasbord of everything and, and food wise for rodents and coyotes and all sorts of things. We potentially provide more food for wildlife here in urban environments than, um, you know, we, we have in agriculture. And so if you think about it, like if you're a coyote or, or a rodent, like why would you bother having to forage for fruit up a tree when you can just eat straight out of the garbage or if you're a coyote it's almost like the difference between you know you could drive around the corner to in and out or you could hike 10 miles to eat your dinner what would you do yeah exactly and and that kind of brings me to what i i really am kind of excited to talk to you about and a lot of that deals with what it is you're working on now um and and what you've been working on the last couple years so um, because I, I think that it's a really interesting and unique approach to trying to address a very complicated and even potentially controversial question. So can you tell me a little bit about what the research, what your primary research focus is right now and has been um, out in, in, you know, in where you're at right now and the facility you're doing research into? Well, I'm the Human Wildlife Interactions Advisor for the University of California's Division of Ag and Natural Resources. And a lot of people have heard of UC Riverside or UC Irvine or UC Davis or Berkeley, but A&R is kind of this, um, you know, campusless institution where we're spread all over the state. And, and basically what we do is we bring the science to the people that need it. Um, and in my case, the people that need the science right now are the pest management professionals. Um, and I only deal, like I said, with four legs and fur. So, you know, we do have urban entomologists that work with our pest management um, folks. And we have weed scientists and we have a lot of people that are most of our people work in agriculture. But we also have 4-H and things like that. So um, I was kind of tasked with um, solving the human wildlife conflicts of Southern California. Easy, right? <laughs> so, you know, when I in in my head what I thought I would be doing was trying to help pest management professionals be more efficient at their job when it came to managing rodents. And so finding ways to, you know, be a better rat catcher, be a better rodent manager. That's what I thought I would do in my head. But as soon as I got here, the bloom bills started to show up in the assembly and the bloom bills basically were bills that were trying to ban the use of it started off as many rodenticides and it's kind of um formed into just the anticoagulant rodenticides and mainly the second generation anticoagulant rodenticides so the bloom bill in its current form ab 1788 would basically ban the use of second generation anticoagulant rodenticides for pest management professionals and heavily restrict the applications of first generation or first generation anticoagulant rodenticides for certain applications. Um, and so that's um, slightly concerning because rodenticides are a very important tool for the management of rodents. But on the flip side and the reason why the bill was kind of created is because in California and probably across the United States, there is a lot of rodenticide exposure showing up in wildlife that's non-target. You know, this rodenticide is not supposed to be in this non-target wildlife. (laughs) So you kind of got hit with a big U-turn right as soon as you you got settled in. So was that 2016? 
2000 yeah 2016 I think was the first one it might have been yeah 2000 because I got here no I think it was 2015 actually was the first one yeah yeah and and the bill has certainly moved I mean it, it got the bill got very very far it was very very successful it moved through the assembly and moved through the senate um, and it was you know it was not that far away from the governor's desk when the bill got um the bill got a, a dropped or pulled or I don't have very good government 101, Mike, as you can imagine. But <laughs> You're I, killing it right now. I don't know. Yeah. Tell you, this, this is great. Um, you mentioned something that's very important, and that's that anytime something is put out, it's a management tool or a management product, the idea is to only affect the target pest um, and certainly to minimize the risk of exposure to anything non-target. So in this case, with the mm-hmm. anticoagulant rodenticides, what were some of those non-target pests that were of concern where they started to see these anticoagulant rodenticides showing up? Well, I think in Southern California, if anyone's watching this issue, I mean, I, you can't deny that the mountain lions are kind of like the poster child of the anti-anticoagulant movement. And so I think just in Southern California, which is what I'm the most familiar with, you know, the wildlife that people are, I guess, um, most concerned with were probably the mountain lions, bobcats, coyotes or coyotes whatever whatever you call them and then um, birds of prey like owls raptors things like that yeah and so in order to find out that there was an anticoagulant of any kind in their system how were they how were they doing this were they just tagging them drawing blood and releasing them or well, it's a mixture of everything. So a, a lot of ways that people get their kind of people, scientists, I guess, not just, I guess, m- most normal people are not going out chopping up bits of animals and getting their liver. But the way we would go about it in our lab is that we receive carcasses, coyote carcasses from different people. We get them from pest management professionals that control them for nuisance reasons. We get them for from like Caltrans are kind of our our you know, are kind of a road transit people. We get them from police departments that have animal controls. We get them from animal care and control. And so what happens is when they come in, um, usually you can tell what they've died from. You know, they've been hit by a car. There's, you know, there's a bullet inside them. They've been euthanized. Um, And we get a lot of information with our coyotes. And then what happens is, is that if you don't know how they die, you actually have to perform quite a complex necropsy, which involves skinning the animal, looking for signs of um, trauma, looking for signs of bruising that are not related to trauma, because anticoagulant rodenticides, the way they work is that they cause the, the blood to basically coagulate. And so that's how you would get a bruise without trauma. And so we look for pooling of blood in the toes. We look for excessive amounts of blood in the body cavity without evidence of trauma so if me and you were to go out and walk down the street and get hit by a car uh, high chances that would happen here in, in southern california for sure and <laughs> um, they and you opened us up there could be evidence of a lot of blood there the difference between a coyote that's died potentially from intoxication from a second generation anticoagulant and um, rodenticide exposure is that there would be absolutely no evidence of trauma and so the presence of rodenticide, anticoagulant rodenticide in an animal is not enough to confirm that it has died from anticoagulant exposure. They have to be opened up and you have to, you know, really examine them for broken bones, abrasions, um, you know, things that could have caused them death other than anticoagulant rodenticide. And then if you find things like bruising, blood pooling, um, in certain parts of the body without any trauma, and then you confirm the presence of anticoagulant rodenticide through a different lab test. Usually what we do is we send off parts of the liver, liver to different labs that specialize in that, and then they come back and they tell us what active ingredients are present and how much active ingredient is present. And so combine that with some of these signs and the absence of trauma, then you can fairly confidently and say that the animal died from um, intoxication. So exposure, death from exposure to anticoagulant rodenticide. Yeah, and I think you, you know, you touched on something really important. I think that, and I think it is important for people to understand that, you know, there's a lot of work that has to go into identifying that. Just because something has evidence of something in its blood doesn't necessarily mean that that's why it died or how it died. And in many cases, you guys are, you're, you're getting these, uh, you know, these animals turned over to you 
because they were found dead on the road or something like that. Um, and so there, there's a lot of work that goes into accurately confirming what the cause of death could have been. Um, and I mean, is, is there an LD50 for these organisms? They could just simply say, hey, we know that it, once it gets above so many parts per million, that, that you know this is the number that we can accurately rely on as for sure, if there's this much or more in, the, in a bobcat system, then this is what killed it. So LD50 is a bit of a scary one for, for wildlife, I think, because before the LD50 of the animal that died at LD1, the animal that died at LD2, the one that died at LD3, LD10, LD20. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, it's very, very variable, and it, it looks like it's potentially based on individuals. And then if you think of a species as a whole, potentially maybe some animals are maybe more prone to dying from anticoagulant exposure. Now, we've no evidence of this, but if you look at something like a coyote that, you know, eats out the trash versus a mountain lion, that kind of, imagine how a mountain lion takes down its prey. Like, imagine how a mountain lion takes down a deer and how rough that is compared to a coyote that, you know, snatches a gopher or a rabbit and you know doesn't really have to do too much I'm not saying that they're lazy or anything and they're not skilled predators because they certainly are but they're not kind of like tumbling around with their prey and so it could be likely that maybe mountain lions are more susceptible to death from anticoagulant rodenticides however in San the Santa Monica Mountains pretty much we only have evidence of mountain lion intoxication from anticoagulant rodenticide in the Santa Monica Mountains. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife has done quite extensive studies on mountain lion carcasses submitted to their lab, and none of those have died from intoxication. Um, and so we're not really potentially talking about um, a global issue here, or not a global issue, I mean a West Coast issue here. I am not saying that these animals should be exposed to rodenticide. There is, there, they should not be exposed to anticoagulant rodenticide. But what we're finding is we're finding levels of exposure, but not high levels of intoxication. Um, and so in the Santa Monica Mountains, it, it appears that the mountain, line, mountain lions die from inter-mountain lion conflict. They die from roadkill, so accidents on the road um, from, you know, all those crazy Californians driving around the place. I certainly know how hard it is to drive in Santa Monica myself. <laughs> and um, then rodenticide exposure. Um, and so, and the problem with the Santa Monica mountain lions dying from rodenticide exposure is that that population is under so much pressure that one or two mountain, like one or two less mountain lions in that population is a humongous deal. I mean, a humongous deal. The problem with that population is, is that if it didn't die from rodenticide exposure, it would have died from something else. Um, and I'm not, I am not excusing, I'm not saying that it should have died from rodenticide exposure. What I'm saying is, is that if that population don't fi fix their habitat connectivity issues, it doesn't matter if there's rodenticide killing mountain lions there or not, because they will die from something else. So, I mean, you're saying it's it's absolutely critical that it, it, losing one of these individuals could be absolutely critical. Is that because their territories are so subdivided by urbanization that they, they just take such a genetic hit of the diversity yeah. pool? Is that the issue? So a dead male mountain lion in the Santa Monica Mountains is a really big deal, Mike, because you've just lost um, any genetic diversity. So we know from research that urban wildlife in general, compared to rural wildlife, you know, kind of natural resource wildlife, you know, wildlife and ag, um, urban wildlife are more diseased and they're more exposed to environmental contaminants. So mountain lions that are in close proximity to people are basically going to be less fit anyway, more than likely. Um, and then you put a load of them in one space that, you know, and like loads of it went on fire last year too, or this year, Mike, and so that's more pressure. And so there's all these things that are against these mountain lions. And the one thing that they really need is they need new blood and more space. And they can't get that because, they have this kind of, they're boxed in. And so every time they try to leave, they get hit by a car, which is so tragic. And then the other thing is, is that if they don't leave, they're just left to breed with their own relatives. And so 
when anticoagulant intox it like when a mountain lion dies from anticoagulant intoxication, especially a male mountain lion, that is a huge blow to that population. It's a big deal. It is a very big deal, and I could see why the environmentalists in that area feel so passionately about it. Um, of course, we're never going to ban cars. We're never going to be able to do anything about the fact that there is such a high density of mountain lions there unless we fix the habitat connectivity issues. And so I think that rodenticide is kind of the low-hanging fruit here and the pest management professional has a target on its back in California because these are restricted-use products and technically only our pest professionals can apply them. So... What is it that you're, you and your team are trying to do and how are you trying to do it to better understand how some of these products are making their, potentially making their way into uh, the systems of some of these predators? So I always say this, Mike, you can't fix it unless you know how it's broken. And I don't believe that we know how this system is broken. Um, and we, there are reasons why professionals use anticoagulant rodenticides you know they're they're easy to use they're highly palatable there's delayed toxicity kind of there's like delayed onset of symptoms almost um so the rats don't tend to get bait shy i mean there's a there's a number of reasons why anticoagulant rodenticides are very very important to have and there is a place in this world for anticoagulant rodenticides but it's not in non-target wildlife. And so we have to find a way how to mitigate that. So when I first got here and I, you know, it's kind of just, you know, as scientists do, kind of mulling over things and trying to figure out at least what I thought was going on. And I, I was very confused because, A, mountain lions don't eat roof rats, as far as we know, anyway. And B, the only literature that existed for coyotes in Southern California also said that they didn't eat roof rats. And I'm thinking, well, what, what's going on here? And so we kind of came at it a couple of different ways. The first way that I thought would be the best way to figure out how are coyotes getting exposed to anticoagulant rodenticide in Southern California would be to figure out what they are eating. And if we knew what they were eating, it would give us a good idea of what the p- potential, you know, exposed prey would be and so we ha- we must be up on nearly 600 coyotes in our lab mike um i have i call them my freezer children they're dotted across <laughs> southern california as far i guess i have freezers as far north as fresno um um i'm telepathically connected to them all you know i know how i know how well they're doing how full they are um and so we basically have these you know these 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 kind of just these chest freezers that are filled with coyotes and you haven't lived till you've tried to stack 20 uh, already frozen coyotes inside a freezer it's like dead freezer coyote tetris and um, it's very <laughs> <laughs> it's a very interesting skill set um, to have for sure and so what we what that was our first kind of thing was what do they eat and, you know, we we kind of had two different approaches. One was I had this student who went through the um, the gut contents of the coyote stomachs and she kind of like sieved them out. I mean, it was just, it's pretty gross, um, but she's fantastic and fabulous. And so she like sieved them all out and figured out what those hard parts were. So like chewed bits of this and chewed bits of that and what was going on. And so she got all of those and figured out what it was. And then what she did was she put it all back in a in a bag and then she gave it to another student and this other student blitzed it all up. And um, we like to call those the molecular margaritas. And she extracted DNA out of that. And so what we found was is that coyotes in Southern California eat a lot of cats. They eat some amount of roof rats. Probably about 10% of the coyotes that we recovered had roof rats in their diet. Um, and they eat a lot of rabbits. Um, and so it kind of goes... Um, cats, rabbits, then kind of a mix between gophers and rats. And so in our head, we're thinking, well, you know, they also eat bowls, they eat a small amount of mice, and they eat, you know, some birds, and they eat this, and they eat that. And I'm thinking, I was like, I was like, I wonder how many of those are exposed. So our kind of our next task, and this is thanks to NPMA, we got funding to look and see basically 
what was entering bait stations. And I couldn't believe that nobody had ever done this. Nobody had ever put a camera on a bait station to see what gets in and out of a bait station because we were like, well, if we know what gets in in and out of a bait station and it's not roof rats, well, then we need to figure out ways to apply these baits to minimize things that would enter. So what we did was, um, you know, thanks to NPMA, we bought all these cameras. We had really great support from our manufacturing partners um, to apply bait stations. And we didn't use bait. We used um, the Bell Detex and the Leafatech rat and mouse attractants. So those two would kind of mimic basically a black bait and a soft bait. They're basically the... They're basically rodenticide without the active ingredient, right? You know, it's just a bait matrix. And so we illegally applied those. We anchored our bait stations, you know, less than 50 feet from a structure. And we had one on the ground and we would had one about head height off the ground. And what we did was for several months in about 90 different sites, we monitored what went in and out of these bait stations. And very little other than rats went in and out of the bait stations. Yes, we had... We had some deer mice and we had some wood rats or pack rats. Um, deer mice may or may not be non-targets, depending on what rodenticide you're using. Wood rats in California are absolutely non-targets because they're not on any rodenticide label um, in California. The ones, the species that we have here in California are not on the label, certainly. Um, we had ground squirrels, very few, and we had one possum. And so, in essence, bait stations are basically doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're targeting targets. Um, what we did figure out is that at least the the um, ability for um, non-targets to access prey would essentially be significantly reduced if you were to put it in a tree. Now, I'm not suggesting that pest management professionals bait off the ground. I'm just saying that roof rats spend a lot of time off the ground and it might be a good place to start anyway. But this is kind of one of those things where, well, it could reduce non-target exposure. However, we had so few animals actually go into the bait stations that now we're back at, is the target animal really the problem? So what we've basically figured out is that they're in in suburban applications, legal applications of anticoagulant rodenticides in California, that it doesn't look like we're at least primarily impacting non-targets because none of them are none of them are going into the base station, at least none that we could see anyway. And we looked, like I said, over 30 days, over several months, in over 90, in about 90, I think it was about 90 different sites. Um, across a, a spectrum of kind of like habitats. I mean, they were all backyards, but the backyards were kind of in different places. And so, it, I mean, it was really, really interesting. And, you know, it was a great project. It was a really good student project. Um, it was a nice grant from NPMA. And we were able to actually find out a lot of stuff um, that we didn't originally know. And so, so now we're back to coyotes eat, don't eat that many rats. But in the backyard, not, nothing other than really rats goes into the bait stations. So is a rat enough to expose our coyotes? And we have a lot of exposure in our coyotes, Mike. We have 97% of our of the, the coyotes that we receive in our lab are exposed to one and at least one anticoagulant rodenticide. Now, my, my first question to, to that is, what is the rate of exposure? I mean, do you, do you have a measurable range of how much, or are you just simply testing for presence absence? So we are text te- testing for residues, even though it doesn't really matter. And I mean, it matters to a degree because there's probably a level, potentially a level at where it might start to impact the health of the coyote significantly, potentially. But we know so little about our, what our residue values mean. And so what I can tell you is that out of 500 and I think it's like 575 coyotes or something like that we've had now, less than 1% have died from intoxication. You know, what other research that we're doing, Mike, is because just because it doesn't kill the animal doesn't mean that it doesn't have some other effect on it or what we call a sub-lethal effect. Um, so... 
you know, just because wine doesn't kill you doesn't mean that it's not going to have an effect on your body if you drink enough of it. And so that's what we're trying to look at at the minute. So we're trying to look at the fitness of the coyotes. We're trying to look at some disease stuff, trying to look at anticoagulant exposure. But we're kind of in between a rock and a hard place at the minute because when you when you do scientific experiments, you usually have to have a control. And we don't have a control because we are really, really struggling to find coyotes in Southern California that are not exposed to anticoagulant rodenticides. Um, and so we're not really sure what's going to come of that research because it is likely, we haven't tested all the coyotes now for exposure in that group, but it is likely that all of them are exposed. However, you know, it kind of brings you back to in Southern California, and I don't know how much um, people are aware of what's happening with coyotes in Southern California, but at least appears anecdotally, and we don't have a lot of evidence of this, but it seems like there are more coyotes in Southern California than they have, there ever were. And it also appears that they're in more places than they ever were in Southern California too. Um, and so I would say at least there's anecdotal evidence combined with what we're looking at that says that there's no population level effect of anticoagulant rodenticides on coyotes in Southern California. Wow. Yeah, I mean it's it's a big it is a big deal, but yeah. exposure that doesn't mean that doesn't kind of negate exposure. Of course, um, because we don't really know what it means. We don't really know what it's doing to wildlife. So there has to be a balance because what we do know is that rodents are bad news. Commensal rodents are bad news. They carry bad diseases that not only kill people but make people really unwell. You know, we know that they're linked to early onset of asthma in children. We know all of that. We know all of it. And we could know more of it. We don't know enough about it, that's for sure. But we we don't and we don't know how exposure works and we don't know if, you know, there's population level effects, but at least looks like there isn't. Um, and so there has to be a balance somewhere. And I'm not saying that there's you know, there should be a trade off, um, but the EPA does risk assessment and they kind of almost Assume that some pesticides are going to get into the environment, mm-hmm. but the risk—the risk of you um, succumbing to something bad because you don't use the pesticide—is potentially greater than the other side. Yeah. And so it's hard to find that balance. It really, really is difficult. And I don't think that there's any pest management professional going out there throwing rodenticide all over the place and um, that doesn't care about the environment. But their job is to kill rats. Um, and one of the fastest, easiest way to kill rats is to use rodenticide. So, yeah, and so, and, and it's not just, you know, obviously there's other, and you kind of spoke about this, there's other kind of avenues of exposure. You know, the pest management professional is not the only professional that actually uses anticoagulant rodenticide. There's also our public health officials. And so in California, if you took away the anticoagulant rodenticide away from the pest management professionals, you would still have our public health people, our vector control agencies would still be using them and would probably have to use them at greater rates um, because of the fact that many people might fail to adequately adequately control rodents without the use of rodenticide. And so um, the other side to that is, is, obviously, as you mentioned, there is illegal sales of rodenticide and we know we are detecting cumatetralil in our coyotes. Cumatetralil is an active ingredient that's not even registered in the United States. Um, But it's impossible to parse out illegal use from legal use. And so another part of our research, Mike, um, that we're really, really excited about is that we're starting to develop a kind of a rodenticide tracer one that would have the ability to trace an application up a food chain. So if I apply an anticoagulant rodenticide or this kind of, you know, marked anticoagulant rodenticide in the field and a rat eats it and then a coyote eats that rat and eats another rat and then, or if a, you know, if a a raccoon eats the rat and then the, the coyote eats the raccoon, we're hoping that that will give us the ability to be able to trace these applications up the food chain. And so what we will be able to look at is looking at legal applications of rodenticide and how we how they might be moving up the food chain in the field. Now it takes an awful lot of steps to be able to do that. And, and really what we're moving towards 
is a, a non-destructive rodenticide monitoring system, basically a system where you could set up some sort of network of hair snares and you wouldn't have to rely on picking up dead animals from the side of the road. We would be hopefully um, kind of creating this non-biased sample. So your chances of getting healthy and sick animals would be as high um, because all you need is a piece of their hair. Um, it's, yeah, and it's a, it's a, it's a pretty incredible project. We're very, very excited about it. It's pretty much the craziest project and craziest idea we've ever had. Um, but we're working with a lot of people, working with our manufacturing partners, working with, um, you know, Pepperdine University, working with Cal State Fullerton, working with UC Davis, working with Utah State. Um, we're working with a lot of people to, and, and working with the USDA as well, the National Wildlife um, Research Center in Colorado and what they are doing is they're trying to develop they're trying to develop the method of how to detect the rodenticide in the hair um, and it's really it's so cool it's really cool to think that we may be moving away from this system that doesn't really appear to be um, very un, if, well, I mean it appears to be fairly un, or biased to be honest you know a lot of people testing a lot of animals that they've just scraped off all, off the side of the road whereas this would be hopefully a kind of a, a full picture of what the full population might be exposed to um, but we're in very very early days I won't lie it's extremely expensive so we bought 250 milligrams of our this little marker um, this week and it cost us about $35,000 oh my gosh so now yep. okay you just laid a lot of stuff on me here. So I, I am like kind of <laughs> nerdy giddy at the same time. All right. So uh, a couple things. First off, what is a hair snare and how does it work? It sounds awesome, but I have no idea what it is. Don't get too excited. It's basically a spring that, that, that ca catches the hair. You kind of spread out this, the a spring. And so you put it in an area where um, an animal would jump over like crawl through squeeze beside and the way it's set up is it's kind of so if you imagine a spring kind of stretched out mm -hmm. and what happens is is that the animal the animal pu pushes through it and um, it grabs its hair as it's as it kind of flicks off and so it was really important to me that we would be we would be able to develop hair snares that would be single capture hair snares because what's really interesting about a single capture hair snare is not only can we non-destructively detect if that animal is exposed to rodenticide? But we can tell you the species. And if we have the right amount of hair and we collect it early enough, we can tell you what individual is exposed to what active ingredient. And we could do that essentially over time. So, you know, Mountain Lion X, we could see that it was actually exposed to rodenticide 10 years ago. If, you, if, this, if this system worked, and that after 10 years, it was hit by a car, but it had been exposed to anticoagulant rodenticide for 10 years. Oh, and man. potentially, we might know how much anticoagulant rodenticide it was exposed to as well. Now, this is all very hypothetical, Mike. We don't we don't know. Um, yeah. We don't know if this is going to work yet or not, but we're very excited about it. And the hair snare idea actually came from my colleagues at the University of Galway in Ireland who study this um kind of like kind of like a weasel animal I guess it's called a pine martin in Ireland okay um and they have they've had to develop these um single kind of single speed like single individual hair snare um and I was recently at the international squirrel colloquium as you do oh yeah and what you know yeah I guess everybody most of your listeners have probably been if they're not they're naturally totally yeah yeah come for the rugby yeah. stay for the symposia yeah, pretty much. And so while at the International Squirrel Symposium, I was lucky to catch up with one of um, the technicians that was just a fountain of knowledge. And he kind of, <laughs> I have actually a video on my phone um, of how to create these single capture hair snares. And it's a it's a really neat technique. It's very, very basic. Um, and we're hoping to basically study a whole system. So we would need to have a network of snares that are directed at a, a a range of different species and um, so probably where we are coyotes raccoons possums um, and not only could this work for mammals but this could potentially also work for birds of prey as well 
by looking at their feathers. But we, I mean, this is, and I, I'm not saying it's pie in the sky because we are tr- going to try and make this happen to the best of our ability. Um, and it wouldn't be any more expensive um, if we got it to work because it would just be the same amount of money to test for the sample, which is still expensive. But you've basically got this sample that tells you way, way, way more about the animal and the population. Um, and so we're really excited about it because it could show um, a number of things. It could help us with a number of things. Um, and, you know, p- potentially in the future, who knows, maybe we could use it to actually treat non-target exposure. Um, so like something that delivers an antidote? Potentially. Okay. Um, and you would be able to see its effectiveness. So now I don't know how much this you could speak to because I know that, it, you know, it's early science and you guys are still working on the project. So I certainly don't want you to be given the goods away here. But just so my small brain can better understand this sci-fi phenomena you're throwing at me right now. All right. So it's is it a gen, it's it's a genetic marker? Is that what it is? No, it's actually an isotope. Okay. All right. So, yeah. and then, and what would the idea be? So would it be to put it, put a, uh, an isotope, an identifiable isotope in, you know, one in uh, this bait and a, a, a slightly uh, different isotope in a different bait. So that way you could identify what, what isotope is associated with what bait. Not Yes, and not really at the same time. The okay. only reason we need an, an isotopically labeled bait is so we can trace our application in our study. Gotcha. In essence, this system wouldn't would just work on just normal bait application. Now we're not saying that we would know the source application of every, of the baits. We would just know where they are, how they're well, not how they get there. We'd know what species they're in. We'd know what individual we're in, and we would essentially be able to do that over time. Um, and so that's a way more information than what you get from a dead individual's piece of liver because that that individual is not going anywhere over t- again. And the other thing is, is that for us to study how bait moves around the environment, you kind of need to not kill the thing that you're studying. Um, so tr- like by killing things and trying to study it that way, that's not going to help us understand how rodenticide moves through the system. Um, but... The only reason we need the stable isotope is because we need to be able to trace it through the environment to see if it works. And essentially for the pest management professional and this monitoring system that we're trying to develop off the back of this, we will just be able to monitor active ingredients. So it won't tell us who has applied it. And so so the idea is, so just I'm still trying to put this linearly in my head. So you have a bait laced with an isotope. And the goal is to elucidate the pathway from bottom to top to see just how many organisms could potentially be involved in that. So it's kind of the next generation of this necropsy-style study. Rather than finding a dead coyote and taking its gut contents out, you're simply going and collecting hairs that are trapped from these environmental snares um, and then collecting that and then testing everything in the environment for this isotope mm-hmm. and then because of the fact that you've got the hair you've got the dna so you know exactly what it is species wise and then you're mm-hmm. able to fully delineate and elucidate the entire pathway from bait implementation to top of the food chain yes essentially so for people that don't know what an isotope is in essence all it's going to do is we're going to when it comes to the to trying to find out what active ingredient is in the wildlife, our active ingredient will be slightly heavier than everybody else's active ingredient, if that makes sense. And so that's it. When, when it comes out of the machine, basically the magic machine that tells us how much rodenticide is in, in our sample, you know, you have these kind of these spikes and our spike will be way above anything else in, in, in essence, right? I mean, this is all very hypothetical because we haven't done it yet. But this type of technology is very beneficial to everybody because now we have a way to see if rodenticide exposure is actually staying around in individuals and if individuals are existing for a very long time with this exposure to these active ingredients. And in, in essence, we might be able to see, well, this animal has no exposure 
and we might never have come across it because it never dies. You know what I mean? Yeah, and there is no metabolizing this heavy isotope out of their system, right? So that's why it stays forever? It Well, it, it doesn't stay forever. Okay. So it's really, cle- it's very, very clever. And so this has been a huge learning process for me. And so the yeah, way, I don't know a whole way... lot about it if you can't tell. <laughs> yeah, well, me either. I am not a chemist. But essentially what we have done is, is that the part of the active ingredient that's incorporated into the liver, and that's what makes... Um, that's kind of what makes rodenticide exposure is that anticoagulant rodenticides, they almost like reach into the liver and grab on and don't let go. And so, yes, they metabolize, but it takes a really, really long time. And so the part that the part of the rodenticide that's, that does that, that gets in the liver and kind of holds on tight, that's the bit that we're actually labeling. Um, and so even if it gets, it does, because it, it, the compound does break up, but luckily we're able to label the part that, clings on that stays there um and so that's how we're able essentially to detect it but we should be able to de- to to um develop methods to detect any rodenticide not just ours and so we kind of have two method developments ongoing at the minute and um, one is to try and figure out can we detect just normal rodenticide and then the other is can we detect this um like this labeled compound um, and so we get our, 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 our bait manufactured by a chemical company and then the rodenticide company makes the bait for us. Um, and then that's and then it kind of snowballs from there, you know, lab testing, kind of, you know, proving our point and then seeing if we can get out to the point where we can release it in the field. Let's say five years from now, everything goes great and you've perfectly elucidated this pathway. Um, what's the next step after that? What, what's, what's the future of this study? Yeah, well, what's worrying is, is that California has a lot of data on exposure and it's still not good enough. I still don't think it really tells us a whole lot because I think wherever you look for rodenticide exposure, you're going to find it, Mike. Um, and that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help wildlife advocates that want rodenticide gone. It doesn't help rodenticide advocates that want to keep it. Um, it, it doesn't really answer any questions. We just know that wildlife are exposed. And if we just know how wildlife are exposed, we can't fix it. And what I think is really worrying for the rest of the United States is, is that, you know, even though California doesn't have great data, it still has data. The rest of the United States pretty much got nothing. And so if this, you know, if, if this ban is effective in California, um, it's just going to snowball and it's it's going to come for every other state and they um there's no reason um if the reason is if the reason to ban it is that there's wildlife exposed well then this this the states or the cities um in the rest of the the states in the United States have have no legs to stand on um because there will be exposure in all wildlife in all states in the United States more than likely and we know we know from some studies at least there's evidence of that but if we have an, a monitoring system that we can deploy at fairly little cost. Now, the monitoring system is fairly little cost. It still costs about $300 every time you want to sample hair, but it's $300 every time you want to sample a liver as well. Um, it's expensive. Um, so we need a system that's able to monitor exposure. And, and knowing that you have exposure is not bad. It really isn't bad because... It's just confirming pretty much what we already know is that wildlife get exposed from anticoagulant rodenticides, then we don't know exactly where. But if you don't know it's there, you can't make movements to reduce it or mitigate it. Um, and then on, back to what I said at the beginning is if you don't know how it's broken, you can't fix it. And EPA or the Department of Pesticide Regulation here in California, you know, we keep making these kind of stabs in the dark at things that they think it is. And either it doesn't make it any better or there hasn't been enough time. And so maybe there's not enough time, but we don't know because we don't have a proper monitoring system in place. So it's very complicated. We don't really know what's happening. I feel like I answer, um, you know, one question and come up with 10 more basically, which is what, you know, that's, I think people think that's what scientists do professionally, but it's kind of true. I mean, it's, it's almost like we're going, we're kind of answering the question backwards. Like it could be 50 million things. And I know that it's now just for, it, it, now it could be just 49 million things instead. I mean, I hope that we find the answer, but 
the rug could, the research rug basically could be pulled from under my feet. And and I, one of the things is, is that I serve my clientele in California. If there's no anticoagulant um, in California anymore, there's no anticoagulant research in the Quinn lab anymore either. Um, and so that means that the research that we were doing that could have been beneficial to the rest of the United States will just all go away. Fast forward in time to 2021, and a lot of important things have happened since our interview. Some good, and some not so good. Let's start with the not so good. In December of 2020, California's governor signed off on Bill AB 1788, also known as the California Ecosystems Protection Act of 2020. This bill effectively bans the use of second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides, barring a few minor exceptions, until California's Department of Pesticide Regulations completes a reevaluation of several second-generation active ingredients, making California the first state in the U.S. to impose an all-out ban on second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides. As Neve pointed out, we don't know all of the answers to the questions surrounding the pathway of rodenticides in the environment. And while everyone impacted or involved with this bill completely agree that this is a serious issue that needs to be addressed, making decisions to remove such a critical tool from the structural pest control industry without the proper data to direct the process could ultimately do more harm than good in terms of protecting public health. Not to mention this sets a dangerous precedent for other states to make non-data-driven decisions that could have serious repercussions on our ability to manage dangerous pests. Now on to the good. Over the last year, Neve and her team have been hard at work making headway on the research she covered in the interview, as well as starting some new projects she didn't have time to discuss when we last talked. Rather than me bumbling through her results, I think it would be better if we just have her back on to provide a follow-up of her research and what California's legal changes mean for the future of rodent research and our industry. So stay tuned for part two of this interview coming soon. That's gonna do it for another episode of MPMA's Bug Bites. Be sure to like and follow the channel so you don't miss the release of another new episode. Thanks for listening.